Hello and welcome to Doc Tell Me More, a podcast where I take an in-depth look at documentaries. My name is Mike, I am your host, and I want to welcome you to episode 9. Can you believe it? Episode 9 of Doc Tell Me More, and whether this is your first episode or if you, whether you've been with me through every single one, I just want to thank you very much for being here today. Um, we're in the middle of looking at Ken Burns' baseball documentary. And if you um, aren't familiar with how Doc Tell Me More works, what I do is, is I, I watch um, a documentary and I talk about it from a, a deeper level. We cover some topics that either weren't mentioned in the documentary or we look at some topics that, to a much deeper level than are, um, were mentioned in the documentary. And so we've been covering and, and talking about Ken Burns' baseball because uh, it's, it's one of my favorite documentaries of all time. And uh, I think one of the, the gold standards, in my opinion, in, uh, of documentaries, um, especially long-form documentaries that um, I think are really popular right now. But um, episode nine um, of Ken Burns' baseball um, covers 1970 all the way up to 1990. Four, so it's, it's a longer time period than we've been covering lately. You know, the first episode of Ken Burns Baseball is everything pre-1900. Then we've been doing a decade at a time. And then this covers about 24 years. And Ken Burns Baseball originally aired in 1994. And so it was, at that time, it was pretty much post, you know, 1970. Um, he later came out with episode 10, which we will talk about in our next episode. But there's a lot of information here in episode 9, and I really tried to do this period of baseball justice. Um, I tried to go in-depth. I tried to talk about a lot of things that weren't covered. Um, But there's a lot of things I had to leave out, too. I think this is going to be one of my longer episodes, if not my longest episode. And so I'm going to try not to get um, long-winded. but I can't cover anything, and there's definitely some things I'd love to cover more, but couldn't. But I'm going to do my best to hit the highlights here of, um, you know, baseball in that time period from 1970 to 1994, because there's a lot of great teams, a lot of great players, and a lot of important things to talk about. So, uh, without further ado, let's dive into uh, Ken Burns' baseball. And so, episode eight ended, and episode nine really begins with Kurt Flood. And his seminal um, case um, where he um, really challenged the reserve clause. And again, the reserve clause was a clause in um, each baseball player's contract, which was put in players' contracts all the way back in the 1800s, which said that each player at the end of their contract would, would reserve their services for the next year for their current team. And every year... When uh, a player's contract was renewed, uh, when it came to an agreement on new terms, they would automatically place a new reserve clause in their contract. And so, um, essentially, each team controlled um, a player for life. And uh, really, the, the key to that, the reason for that was it kept salaries down. And players have kind of fought that off and on for 100 years, and it really comes to a head in in the 1970s and with Kurt Flood. Now, Kurt Flood is a really good baseball player. Was an outfielder for the St. Louis Cardinals, mostly. 
Um, he played 12 years with them. He started his career at Cincinnati, but um, came of age really in St. Louis. He put up 42 war, war over his career. Um, his adjusted OPS was 100, which means he was essentially an average hitter, but he's a really good defender. Um, he was part of three World Series teams um, in the 60s. Um, the two champions in 1964 and 1967, and then the, the team that lost to the Tigers in the World Series in 68. Now, after 1969, he was traded to the Phillies. Um, and he, he kind of wondered if it was because of his error in the 1968 World Series that ended up costing the Cardinals um, Game 7 and eventually the series to the Tigers. But either way, he didn't want to go to Philly. First off, Philly was a terrible team. So he's going from maybe the best team in the National League to the worst. Um, it was a first, the Cardinals were a first class organization in terms of uh, they would have charter jets um, for their players to fly around in. Um, Philly didn't really spend that much money on transportation and luxury. Um, he was concerned because Philadelphia had. Um, a racist past and some racist issues spanning all the way back to when Jackie Robinson broke in. And so he was concerned about that. He didn't want to leave his family um, as well. That was in St. Louis. And he really um, didn't have a, a choice in the matter. Now, Philadelphia did offer him a very high salary of $100,000, which would have been his highest salary. But he, um, he didn't like the fact that he had no choice because of the reserve clause. And so what he decided to do was is that he decided to sue baseball to challenge their antitrust exemption that, that had been granted to baseball over the past hundred years. And we talked about those cases earlier with the Toulson case and also the Federal League Baseball case. Now Marvin Miller, who's head of the Players Association, told him he would lose. Um, he, he agreed that he felt like he had a case but the, the courts would probably rule against him, and he'd probably never play again. But Flood decided he was committed to it and wanted to do it. And so the union debt financed him. Um, his lawyer was actually the former Supreme Court Justice Arthur Goldberg. And so Flood sent a letter to Commissioner Bowie Kuhn asking him in, uh, um, to be able to you know, look at other offers from other teams, not just Philadelphia. And, of course, Commissioner Kuhn refused, said nope. And what baseball ended up doing was they made Kurt Flood's letter public. And they really went on a, a PR tear of really trying to um, denigrate Kurt Flood. And so really the public turned against him. They couldn't believe that someone would turn down the opportunity of playing baseball for a salary. And um, they didn't like the fact that Kurt Flood used the, the term slavery in, with the reserve clause. He said it was slavery because he, he had no choice of, um, of, of where to play. And people don't like that. And they, they, they told him, you're, you're going to make $100,000 a year. And he said, well, a well-paid slave is a slave still. And so that, that was kind of some hot topic language that um, didn't sit well with some people. Now, baseball said that you need the reserve system, um, as they called it, because it kept every team competitive. They said without the reserve system and the reserve clause, all the rich teams would sign all the good players, and so you wouldn't have any parity. 
So the 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 original case, which is called Kurt Flood versus Bowie Kuhn, it started in federal court in the seventies. Um, the courts ruled in favor of the owners, um, and they appealed it to the appeals courts, who also ruled for the owners, and it went all the way to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court in 1972 did rule in favor of the owners five to three. So um, they they did rule that baseball was interstate commerce and that the original grounds for the antitrust exemption that baseball had was tenuous and that the exemption was an anomaly because baseball was the only sport that had this exemption. But they said that since... Congress um, had hadn't passed a rule to overturn the exemption that the Supreme Court would not overturn the exemption. So they essentially were saying that um, baseball was a legal monopoly, and then because of their monopoly, they could have this reserve clause in their contracts that tied one player to one team for life, essentially bringing down um, uh, competition. Uh, now, Justice Douglas, um, was one of the dissenters. He had actually been in the majority in that Toulson decision we talked about a couple episodes ago that helped create the antitrust exemption. He said he had regretted his decision. Um, Justice Blackman was the one that wrote for the majority. Um, his uh, opinion was criticized heavily, um, as that essentially that, the logic of the Supreme Court's case was that, um, essentially that, yeah, there might have been an earlier mistake given this exemption because they essentially said that baseball shouldn't have this exemption, but since they already had the exemption, that they couldn't do anything about it. And that was really criticized. They were essentially saying, well, there, there was a mistake, but we can't fix it, which is kind of, I think, uh, a little ironic. I think that's what the courts are in place to do. And so... The Supreme Court essentially upheld baseball's antitrust exemption. They said, nope, Kurt Flood, um, the reserve clause can stay. And so and that, that was it for Kurt Flood. You know, he, he did try to play in 1971 for the Senators in, while, um, in between his cases. And he, only, he quit after 13 games. And he never played again. And so um, it ruined his career. And... And actually, he actually lost. And so he didn't even win a battle for free agency. And now Kurt Flood, nowadays, is considered the, one of the fathers of baseball free agency, even though his case failed. Well, why is he considered that, despite the fact that his case failed? Well, the reason was is that throughout his case, the players were galvanized by um, the effort. And they realized that the courts were going to rule against them. So they could never count on the courts to... Uh, save them from the reserve clause. Um, the case also raised public awareness, though, of this reserve clause and how one-sided it was. So there was some public opinion that turned toward baseball um, players' favor. Um, now, the National Labor Relations Board ended up voting that baseball came under its jurisdiction. And so they were able to help intervene. And... While the case was going on, the players and owners agreed as part of their um, collective bargaining that they would have binding arbitration to settle disputes. And that in and of itself would eventually pave the way for free agency, which we'll talk about in a little bit later in the episode. And so um, 
The stage through those different factors was set for the reserve clause to eventually get shut down. And what really Kurt Flood and his case did, it kind of accelerated those factors. And um, he, while his baseball career was kind of destroyed because of it, um, it helped other, other players' careers later. And, and we'll just kind of uh, take a pause there from the story of free agency. We'll get to the, the rest of how free agency was birthed a little bit later. Um, but right now, that, that was Kurt Flood, a good, solid baseball player um, whose career was finished early because of his challenge to the reserve clause. Now, the early part of the 1970s, um, baseball was dominated by the Oakland A's dynasty. And the 1970s Oakland A's, that whole team just absolutely fascinates me. And I, I'm not an athletics fan at all. Um, I've used underrated a lot in this series when I've talked about teams or players. But the Oakland A's of the 1970s um, are absolutely underrated. Um... They're the only team besides the Yankees to win three World Series in a row. But when people talk about the greatest teams of all times, almost nobody uh, mentions the Oakland A's. And they're often overshadowed in their own decade by the Cincinnati Reds and the Big Red Machine, which we'll talk about. And even the New York Yankees later in, in, in the 70s. Um, but for three years, the A's were, were the best team in the league. And, and there's just a lot of fascinating things about it and there's really five reasons why I'm fascinated about this whole um th this team which I'll kind of get here as I discuss it now you can't tell the story of the Oakland A's without um talking about owner Charlie Finley who we've mentioned before um Charlie Finley was a self-made millionaire he owned a Chicago-based insurance company that's how he made his money now he had bought this Kansas City A's in 1960 and then he moved them to Oakland and that's something we discussed last week now he was an innovator he, he came up with, with a designated hitter. He suggested Night World Series games. Now, it's kind of annoying to watch Night World Series games now, but his reasoning was is that you should be a, the working common man to be able to watch World Series games, and, and, and they're working during the day. So whether you agree with Night Baseball or not, he was a reason why um, night, base, night World Series happened. Um, he changed uniforms to bright colors. Um... You know, to try to kind of make it more attractive. Now, he had some ideas that looked a bit crazy that didn't work. He wanted to have a designated runner as well. He wanted to use orange balls, colored bases, and foul lines. Um, those didn't catch on. Now, he did push for interleague play, and he wanted realignment to promote geographic rivals. So he had some ideas um, that were accepted at the time and some that uh, came later. Um now, he was, kind of, he was a brilliant baseball owner who, from what I've read, was kind of like a grade-A jerk. Um, he had a tremendous ego, and he always wanted to be the center of attention, which is why he went through so much, uh, ma so many managers and staff. He essentially ran everything by himself. He wasn't just the owner. He drafted and signed everybody. He made trades. He made lineups. He approved injuries. Um, he wrote the copy for the yearbook. He told the organist what to play. Um, so he was a very much a hands-on owner. Um, he was absolutely brutal in contract negotiations, and he was personally insulted if a player wouldn't take his offer. He had huge battles with his, some of his star players, like Reggie Jackson and Vider Blue, which became nasty in public. But at the same time, he could be really kind. He would give bonuses for no-hitters and for big hits, which 
was illegal and still is illegal. You can't give a bonus for no hitters. Just, But he would do that. He would also invest his players' monies that they wanted. He would advise them and he would keep... All, um, he would let the players keep all the profits, and he would assume all the risks. So he was a very complicated man. He was kind of a brilliant baseball guy. Um, he could be very kind, but he could kind of be very self-absorbed and, and kind of tr really demean people. And that personality drove him to kind of build this team. And it kind of think it drove his, his people and his players to hate him. And so he's kind of the first reason why I'm intrigued about this team. He was a, a brilliant baseball man who built great teams, had great ideas. Um, he could be vindictive, and he, he, he treated people inconsistently. He's just a complicated man. Now, this dynasty that Charlie Finley created, most of it was through he just drafted well and developed players. And he had just a tremendous amount of, of great players on his team. Now, he had three players that would eventually be in the Hall of Fame. Um, Catfish Hunter um, was a pitcher, one of the best pitchers of the 70s. He won 161 games. Uh, he won the Cy Young in 1974. Um, he won 161 games for Oakland. He'd win 224 in his career. Um, Raleigh Fingers is a Hall of Fame reliever. Um, in his career, he had 341 saves. Um, Reggie Jackson's probably a player that most everybody recognizes. Um, he put up 48 war in, in his Oakland A's career, won the 1973 MVP. Um, he put 269 home runs, 145 stolen bases. In his career, Reggie Jackson hit 563 home runs, but great power hitter. Viter Blue was another one of the great pitchers of the 1970s. He was the 1971 Cy Young and MVP, won 124 games for the A's, 209 in his career. Joe Rudy was one of the best outfielders um, during this time in baseball. Um, he had 179 home runs in his career. Um, Gene Tennis, uh, he had 46 war in his career, 201 home runs, adjusted OPS of 136, which means, again, he's 36% better than the average player. Sal Bando was a third baseman. Um, he had 242 home runs, put up 61 war. Um, and then Burt Campanaris, they called Campy. He was a shortstop, um, put up 53 war in his career. So all those players I just named, and that was eight players, they were drafted and developed by the A's. So they just did a tremendous job of just building this young team um, and growing it from the ground up. But they did make um, a couple other big-time trades. And so Ken Holtzman was... was uh, a pitcher for the Cubs that the A's traded for before 1972. And in four seasons, he would have 77 wins um, for the for the A's. And then Billy North, who was also traded from the Cubs, um, he was a, a big-time uh, speedster. He had 232 stolen bases. And so the A's were put together kind of how people dream of teams being put together. You draft well, you develop, make some smart trades. And the number two reason why I'm just fascinated with this team was just the sheer talent on this team. Some of the all-time great players are on this team. Again, Reggie Jackson is one of the best home run hitters of all time. Raleigh Fingers, one of the greatest relievers. Catfish Hunter, Vider Blue were some of the best pitchers of the era. And then those other guys were all-stars. But the crazy thing is most casual fans might not know much about those players. But these were just incredible players, all-star all -star players 
some of the best players at the positions all on the same team at the same time. It was just an incredibly talented roster that, again, was put together because they drafted well. Now, the A's, um, for five straight years, they won the division, um, 1971 through 1975, so five straight um, years they won the AL West. And, um, and then in 1972, 73, and 74, they um, were in the World Series, and I'll talk about those World Series in a minute. But that's hard to do to win five straight division titles. Um, the, n- not just now, but back then. But they did that. Um, now they were nicknamed the Swingin' A's, and I think certainly Swingin' A's came from, um, from their offense and from hitting. But part of that, too, became from their disharmony. This was not a team that got along with each other well. Um, they got into a lot of fights. Um, one, of, one of the big ones that happened was uh, uh, Billy North and Reggie Jackson got into a fight um, before they played the Tigers. And North kind of uh, had been picking on Jackson and kind of been a little, uh, little throwing some verbal jabs at him. And then Jackson just got tired of it before the game and went after North. Just had a huge fight. Um, Jackson hurt her shoulder. Catcher Ray Fossey actually suffered a herniated disc trying to break it up. So a huge fight before the game. Uh, A's went out and beat the Tigers actually right after that. Later on in the year, just hours before game one of the World Series, um, Raleigh Fingers and then another pitcher named Blue Moon Odom uh, got in a fight right, you're talking about right before game one of the World Series. I mean, this is when you're supposed to be focused, you know, on, on winning, you know, a championship. But they got in a fight, you know, Raleigh Fingers had to have six stitches and Odom sprained his ankles. But lo and behold, they next night, they or that night, they went out one game one. And so it was a team that could get along, but also really could, could didn't completely get along with everybody. And I think it was really impressive you could have this disharmony on a team and go out and be, be successful for five years um, and not tear each other apart. You know, maybe it was great they didn't have social media back then. And so that's sort of the third reason why I'm really fascinated about this Oakland A's team is that they didn't get along, they didn't like each other. Um, you'd think you'd need a positive culture to win, but they didn't. It was a disharmonious team from the owner to the managers and players and from player to player, but um, all they did was win. And so looking at the, at the playoffs during these five years, A's won 101 games actually in 1971, um, but they ended up getting swept by the Orioles in the ALCS. Orioles ended up losing to the Pirates in the World Series. Uh, but in 1972, they won the division again. And uh, they ended up beating the Detroit Tigers in five. It was a, it was a best of five. Uh, close ALCS, three games were one run. But um, they ended up winning and they went on to face the Reds. Now, the Cincinnati Reds um, of the 1970s were called the Big Red Machine, and we'll get to that team actually in a little bit. This is kind of the beginning of the Cincinnati Reds um, uh, kind of uh, success. The Reds had won the World Series in seven, or excuse me, won the pennant in 1970. But they were kind of the premier team, and the team expected to win the 1972 World Series. It was nicknamed the Hares versus the Squares because... For almost 50 years, um, no, it, or excuse me, it had been like 50 years since facial hair had really been worn in the majors. It wasn't a thing anymore at that time. People were clean shaven and played 
Well, Reggie Jackson in 1972 showed up with a mustache and refused to shave it um, in spring training. And Finley kind of realized after being against it, this would could be a good marketing tool. And so he offered his players bonuses if they kept uh, um, the mustaches or beards. And so they that was where the hairs came from. And the Reds were very clean shaven. They were called the squares. Now the A's had to play without Reggie Jackson. Reggie Jackson scored the game-winning run in, in game five of the ALCS, but he pulled his hammy while doing that. Um, and so the series ended up going seven games. Classic game or, or classic series. Six of the games were decided by one run. And so, uh, the, you know, Oakland won the first two, three, two, and two, one. Um, Cincinnati then came and won one, nothing. Um, Oakland won game four, three to two in their last at bat. Cincinnati returned the favor in game five and won five to four in their last at bat. Game six was the only one that was a blowout. That was an eight to one Cincinnati win. And then Oakland won their third game of this of the series by a score of three to two. So just a really close nail biting series. Um, that Oakland ended up winning in seven. Gene Tennis was the um, MVP. Now he had hit five home runs during the season. He hit four in that World Series, and he actually was was doing so well that he started to get death threats. Um, and uh, and there was one guy who ended up um, being arrested with a gun, and um, it, he didn't get really anywhere close into the stadium, but. Um, there was apparently in an interview later in life, Gene, Gene Tennis said that there was a guy who was arrested with a gun, but uh, because of angry, angry Reds fan for how uh, um, for how well Tennis was doing. But anyways, the the, the A's pull off the upset in 1972, and and uh, win their uh, first World Series since moving to Oakland. So 1973, they make it back to the playoffs. Um, they get some revenge where they beat the Orioles in the ALCS. They win again in five. So if if that's the third straight series that went the distance they played in. They ended up playing the New York Mets, who had only won 82 games in 1973. They were 82 and 79, which is the lowest winning percentage by a pennant winner in history. Now the first three games were really close. Um, Oakland won... The first one, two to one, and then the Mets and the A's split the next two, and they went into extra, both of those were in extra innings, and so the A's are up two games to, to one after three. Now, um, kind of one of the more interesting and maybe unusual things that have ever happened in baseball history was the second baseman for the A's, Mike Andrews, made two costly errors in Game Two, um, and. Charlie Finley wanted to get rid of him, but you can't get rid of a player who's on the World Series roster unless he has an injury. And so he put him on the DL and made Mike Andrews fake an injury. Um, and Commissioner Kuhn would eventually force um, Charlie Finley to reinstate him. So it, it really kind of made Charlie Finley look look bad. But uh, just, just very unusual where an owner is mad at a player for their performance and then tries to get him to fake an injury to, to, to get removed from the roster. But Mike Andrews did get reinstated to the roster. The Mets ended up going up three games to two. So they won games 
uh, four and five, and they decide they make a they made a pretty costly error where they had their best pitcher Tom Seaver available, but instead of saving him for Game Seven, they tried to start him on short rest, and that just backfired. And Oakland came and they won the last two games, Game Six and Game Seven, to win their second straight World Series. Um, both of those in seven games. And after the World Series, uh, the manager, Dick Williams, resigned after the, World, after the World Series. He was just fed up with everything Charlie Finley did, so he uh, he resigns. And so going into 1974, you have a new manager, but uh, same, old, um, same, old, same old with the A's. They win the division again. They beat the Orioles again in the ALCS. Um, and then they play the Dodgers, who had won 102 games that year. And the A's had only won uh, 90 games that year. Um, the Dodgers were heavy favorites. It was the first All-California World Series, and it was an, another very, very close uh, series. So the series only goes five games, but four of the games are won by three to two scores. So Oakland won the first game three to two. L.A. wins the second game three to two. Oakland wins the third game three to two. Oakland wins the fourth game five to two, and then the fifth game three to two. So that's just crazy. You look back at the '72 World Series, and there were three games that were three to two. In the 1974 World Series, you had four of them. That's just odd, you know, um, really odd. And actually, if you go back to 1973, they had two games in that series. The one game that was three to two. So just kind of an odd coincidence. Um, the, the A's pulled the upset over the Dodgers. Raleigh Fingers was the MVP who had a win and two saves. And so they won their third straight in a row. They became the only the second team to win three in a row after the Yankees who had done it a, a couple times. Um, they came back in 1975 and won the division again, but um, unfortunately for them were swept by the Red Sox in the ALCS. And so really the fourth reason why I'm fascinated with this team is that they were just so successful. Um, and before I read about them, like you don't hear people talking about the A's in the 70s as some of the great teams of all time, um, which is crazy because like I just said, they're one of the only two teams to win three straight road series. And so all I did was win. Um, and I, th I think they're underappreciated because they were underdogs in two of those world series. And I think they're also underappreciated because they won a lot of close games, a lot of close series. They, they, they went the distance in a lot of their series and, and eked out some games. And so they didn't look dominant, but all they did is win. And so you have a, dy you had a, a dynasty that was highly successful. It's very underappreciated and, and, and it makes me very fascinated with them. Now the downfall of the A's came from actually Charlie Finley himself with a little bit of a boost from free agency. So, after the 1974 season, Catfish Hunter became a free agent. I'm going to delve into that a little bit more deeper in a little bit when I talk about free agency. But Friendly essentially could have kept Catfish Hunter, but screwed up his contract. So Hunter became a free agent and he left. Um, and then eventually, after the 1975 season, um, the reserve clause gets struck down and free agency becomes available. Again, I'll, I'll get in those details in a minute on how that happens. But once free agency came in the 70s, um, Finley had to actually negotiate with the players and couldn't just give them take it or leave it offers. And um, 
he just couldn't operate that way. And so instead of trying to negotiate and keep his players, he just traded off his players. So he traded Ken Holton and Reggie Jackson to Baltimore and um, tried to sell some players. And then, um, but eventually a lot of his other stars like Bando, Tennis, Campanaris, Fingers, Joe Rudy, they just became free agents and left. And what's unfortunate for him is that Charlie Finley had the opportunity to sign all of those players before they became free agents for a total of $3 million. And he thought that that was just too much money. Well, interestingly enough, all those players ended up making over $12 million in free agency. So if he was smarter, he could have kept them. Um, and that kind of brings me to my fifth and last reason why I'm fascinated with this team. Um, it's that if Finley could have cooperated more and kept everyone, they could have kept winning. So they won the division in 1975 without Catfish Hunter. Imagine if they kept him, maybe they won the World Series four years in a row. And then a lot of these players continued to play well in 76, 77, 78. And so if he could have kept those players, they would have had a chance of winning four or more in a row. Obviously a tough task. They would have gone up against some tough teams. But it would have been nice to see them try. Um, Finley eventually was forced to sell before the 1981 season when his wife filed for divorce. Um, a complicated legacy. But the 1970s were just a great dynasty. Had great players. Had great drama. Played some uh, great World Series. Won. Um, but they seem to be forgotten. And so uh, I'd really encourage you to go out and, and do some research. Um, yourself on the Oakland Acers. Um, very interesting team. And so um, after the A's kind of fall apart, um, uh, the next team to kind of fill their void was the Cincinnati Reds. Now, as I mentioned earlier, the 1970s Reds were called the Big Red Machine. Really cool nickname. And that nickname first um, came or was first used in 1969 by Bob Herzl, the Cincinnati Inquirer. Um, now the Reds had won the pennant in 1970 and 1972. They'd won the National League West in 1973, but 75 and 76 is where the Reds really um, were at the heights of their power. And this two-year run, they're considered one of the greatest teams of all time. Um, in 1975, they won the NL West by 20 games. They won 108 games. They swept uh, Pittsburgh um, in the NLCS, and they went and played Boston in the World Series. Um, they were 64-17 and 17 at home, which is a national league record. They clinched on September 7th, which is still the earliest a team has clinched. Um, in 1976, they won 102 games. Won the NL West by 10 games, swept the Phillies in the NLCS, and they played the Yankees in the World Series. And again, I'll talk about their World Series in a little bit. Now, the, the Reds were known for their lineup, and it was called the Great Eight, their lineup. And so, um, when this lineup of eight that, I, that I'm going to go through here in a little bit played together, they had a 793 win percentage over. 1975 and 1976. So um, just one of the best lineups ever put together. And so Pete Rose um, played third base. Um, he's the all-time hit king. He had his 4,256 hits, put up 79 home runs, was a 1970, in his 79 war, excuse me, in his career. Lifetime 303 hitter, 1973 MVP. 
Then you had Ken Griffey. Um, he, he is the dad of Ken Griffey Jr. Played left field. Had 152 home runs in his career. Had 200 stolen bases. Joe Morgan was the second baseman. Now, he might have been the, the greatest second baseman of all time. And I want to go on a little bit tangent here and talk about how great Joe Morgan was. Uh, Joe Morgan um, could hit for power, hit for average. He could take his walks. He could steal bases. Um, he uh, hit... Uh, Again, he had 100 war in his career, put up 268 uh, home runs, excuse me, um, in his career, stole 689 bases, uh, had an adjusted OPS of 132, and he was the 1975 and 76 MVP. Um, he was originally signed by the Houston Colt 45s, and he played with Houston from 1965 to 71, one of the best in the league already at that time. Then he was traded to Cincinnati after 1971. And then he really kind of became the great player during his eight years with the Reds from 72 to 79. He put up 11 war in 1975 and 9.6 war in 1976. Anything above eight's MVP level and incredible. Anything in the double digits is just amazing. Um, he, he, after 1979, he played at Houston again. He played at the Giants. He played at the Phillies. He played at the A's. He made the 83 World Series with the Phillies. But he led the National League and walked three times on base percentage four times. Runs, triples, slugging, OPS twice. He was a 10-time All-Star, five-time Gold Glove winner. Again, one of the best second basemen of all time, and he was right in the middle of this lineup. Now, right behind Joe Morgan... Was Johnny Bench. Johnny Bench is considered one of the great, maybe the greatest catcher of all time. So the greatest second baseman, greatest catcher. Johnny Bench hit 389 home runs, um, put up 75 WAR. He was a 1970-72 MVP. So this team had in its lineup the MVPs from 70, 72, 73, 75, and 76. Incredible lineup. After Johnny Bench was Tony Perez. He was first base. Um, he was a Hall of Famer as well, so he had Bench as a Hall of Famer, Perez as a Hall of Famer, Morgan's a Hall of Famer. Um, he had 379 home runs, 2,700 hits. Behind him was George Foster, who was the 1977 MVP, just MVPs galore. Um, 348 home runs, 44 war in his career. Behind him was Dave Concepcion, was shortstop, 101 home runs, 321 stolen bases in his career. And finally, Cesar Geronimo, center fielder, he had 13 war. So just a ridiculous, star-studded lineup. You had four different players who had won MVP. You had three players who were in the Hall of Fame. And Pete Rose would be a fourth had he not been banned for betting. Um, just a phenomenal lineup. Five of these eight players are homegrown. Uh, Geronimo and Morgan were brought over in, in a trade with the Houston Astros. George Foster was traded from the Giants. Um, now, this lineup happened because initially Pete Rose didn't play third base. But in, at the beginning of 1975, the Reds had a huge hole at third base. And their manager, Sparky Anderson, asked Pete Rose if he would move to third base. To fill that hole to, to give some offense at third base. And by doing so, he could get George Foster in. 
in left field. And so to Pete Rose's credit, he agreed to that. Again, that lineup was together for the first time on May 3rd, 1975. And then starting on May 17th, the Reds went 40-10 and 10 over a 50-game stretch to go from 5.5 behind to 12.5 up. Just a great lineup. Now, just like the A's, they weren't one big happy family. There were divisions on this team. Notably, it was Pete Rose versus Johnny Bench um, were on different sides. Now, Pete Rose was from Cincinnati. He was kind of a hometown player who didn't really appreciate losing attention to Johnny Bench. And so you kind of had Rose and Morgan on one side, Johnny Bench and Tony Perez, Perez excuse me, on the other. But they got the job done. They had some solid pitchers. Um, you know, Gary Nolan, who was at 30 and 18 for the, in these two years. Jack Bellingham was 27 and 20. Fred Norman was 24 and 11. Maybe the best or most talented pitcher was Don Gullett. He was 26 and 7. Now, he was compared to be the next Sandy Koufax. And Sparky Anderson said that he was going to be a Hall of Famer. He just um, had some injury issues. He had a broken thumb. He had a dislocated ankle tendon. Had neck shoulder injuries. He had a double tear of his rotator cuff. That sounds awful. Um, pitched well for the Reds. Um, would eventually pitch for the, for the Yankees later. Um, he was actually a member of four straight World Series champions. But he didn't pitch again after 1978. Only won 109 games. Um, which was too bad. Um, uh, again, Sparky Anderson thought he was a pretty good pitcher and could have been a Hall of Famer. And had he not gotten hurt, maybe he would have. Now, the pitching staff wasn't considered as strong as some of the other great teams in history. And this is what some baseball historians ding them um, in term, when considering them as, as one of the greatest of all time. Now, manager Sparky Anderson used his bullpen a lot, and he was called Captain Hook, which is another cool nickname uh, because of that. And so when you think of this big red machine, think about big offense. and a pitching staff that was solid, but didn't necessarily have some of the great pitchers of all time. So looking at, at the playoffs here for the Reds, again, uh, 1975, um, NLCS, they pretty much dominated. They, they won big their first two games, and they won game three in the 10th to go to the World Series. Now, the World Series was, was talked a lot about in the documentary, and so I won't really spend a whole lot of time on the 75 World Series, but game six is considered maybe the greatest World Series game of all time, where Carlton Fisk walked it off to force game seven. And this series was considered one of the greatest of all time as well. What's not mentioned on the documentary is that games two, three, and four were all one-run margins. The Red Sox had won game one. The Reds scored two in the top of the ninth at game two to win that game three to two. Otherwise, it would have gone down two games to none. Um, game three, Boston scored two in the ninth to fourth extra innings. But then the Reds walked it off. And then uh, Boston ended up winning game four, five to four. So a lot of the focus is on game six and, and seven. Um, but the whole series was great. And the Reds ended up winning game seven, four to three. Um, and they scored the winning run on top of the ninth. And, and like I said, talked about a lot in the documentary. So I don't want to necessarily talk about a lot here. But the Reds win the World Series in 1975. Um, they come back in 76, have another great year. And uh, in the NLCS, they uh, against the Phillies, they dominate the first two games. Game three is close again, but uh, they're down two in the ninth. 
and then Foster and George Foster and Johnny Bench hit back-to-back home runs and tie the game. And then Ken Griffey would get a walk-off hit to um, get the to win to help win the game and get the Reds to the World Series. On the 76 World Series, the Reds um, faced the Yankees, who were back in the World Series for the first time in, in 12 years. This was the first World Series that had the DH, and they actually used it for all games. Um, you know, game one, uh, the Reds won five to one. Um, game two uh, was four to two. Game three was six to two, and game four seven to two. And the Reds won all four of those games. And so the Big Red Machine uh, came in and swept the Red, or excuse me, swept the Yankees in four. They were only the second team to sweep New York in the World Series. The Dodgers had done that in 1963. They actually outscored the Yankees 22 to eight. And they're the only team in the world in uh, the playoffs, Major League history, to sweep a multi-tier postseason. So they won the NLCS three nothing. They won the World Series four nothing. And that's gonna be really tough to do nowadays, where you have a best of five division series, best of seven championship series, and then a World Series. But as a, but they're the only team to sweep a multi-tier postseason. They're the first National League team to repeat since the 1921-22 Giants, and no one's done that since. Um, overall in the 70s, the Big Red Machine, they had six division titles, four pennants, two World Series, and they averaged 95 wins in the decade. So Cincinnati Reds, um, one of the best teams of all time, certainly one of the best lineups, if not the best lineup um, of all time. Now, the A's and the Reds championship teams represented the end of an era. And an end of an era where players could not choose which teams they played for. Um, and if you look at, as I mentioned, most of the A's and the Reds' cores that led them to those championships were homegrown. They were drafted and, and developed um, over a period of time, which was um, easier to do for these teams because of the reserve clause. And that all that had been going on since the beginning of baseball, back uh, when the National League was founded, and was really solidified uh, over the next 10, 20 years, and then all the way up through the mid 1970s, and when uh, free agency finally came to baseball. Now, there's, there's a couple of events that occurred that really propelled free agency um, to become a reality, and one was Kurt Flood in his case that we've talked about already, but. Um, another was a direct result of the A's, and, and that was Catfish Hunter's um, free agency. And so Catfish Hunter became a free agent after the 1974 season, so the A's third championship season. And that happened before real free agency came to baseball. And so what happened with Catfish Hunter is that he had agreed to a contract with Charlie Friendly for two years, um, $200,000 a year. Um, pretty good contract because, again, he was probably the best pitcher in baseball at the time. Now, half of his contract was supposed to be put into an annuity. Um, And while while Finley had agreed to do that, he refused to make that payment once he realized that he had to pay $25,000 in taxes. So he just didn't didn't pay for it, which is crazy. I mean, what what was he thinking? Um, And his... uh, Hunter's lawyer had wrote, written him a letter and, and told him he had to get it done. And I think he wrote him even a, 
I think at least he wrote him a second time. And there was one of those times that it was written where um, he had he was told if you don't pay by this date, you know, we're going to take legal action. And Finley still hadn't done that. Now, this kind of all came out in the public light during the World Series. And um, Charlie Finley walked into the A's dressing room and presented a check to Catfish Hunter for the full amount. And if he would have accepted that, it would have ended the dispute and, and he would have remained an Oakland A. But he smartly refused to do that. And he said he would talk after the World Series. And so the A's won this World Series in 1974 with this whole Catfish Hunter um, contract issue um, kind of uh, lurking about. Now, after the season, um, Catfish Hunter declared himself a free agent because um, Charlie Finley, he said, was in breach of contract. And so because he didn't pay the, the half the contract into an annuity. And so the dispute was brought before an arbitrator, an arbitrator that both the owners and the players agreed upon, and that was Peter Seitz, and that he decided that because Charlie Finley was in breach of contract, he declared Catfish Hunter a free agent, and he could negotiate with any team. And this was huge because there had been players before who had been cut from their contracts, released, whatever, but they hadn't been a player of Catfish Hunter's caliber on the open market. Um, he had just won the Cy Young in 1974, was part of three championship teams. He was maybe the best pitcher in baseball, um, you know, and he wasn't young. I mean, he wasn't old, excuse me. Um, at the time of 1974, he's 28 years old. You know, he just won 25 games. He was in the, in the prime of his life, and so he was a big-time free agent. Uh, and so 23 of the 24 teams went after him. The only one that didn't was the Giants. And all these teams descended on North Carolina in this law office, this small town, to try to woo him. Um, and the Padres, the Royals, the Indians, and the Yankees became the favorites to land him. Um, the, the Padres offered him $4 million, and that was uh, Ray Kroc owned the Padres. And um, he was the owner of McDonald's as well. And there was some talk that they could he could own some McDonald's stores as well. Um, the Rangers offered him a farm annuity because Hunter was a big kind of outdoorsman, big hunter, for uh, plus $30,000 for 15 years in a row. And uh, the Pirates offered him three and a half, excuse me, $3.75 million for five years, um, plus a limited partnership in five Walmart stores. Um, and the Royals offered him... Um, $137,000 for, for six years, money for a farm, college tuition for his two kids, and, and $50,000 a year for life. And then Hunter asked him what happened if he died, and they said it would be done, you know, his, well, it, that the contract would end. And he said, what about his wife? And, and the Royals kind of reneged on that. And actually had the Royals agreed to that his wife would have gotten the payments for the rest of her life if he died. Um, he Reports are that he probably would have signed at the Royals right then and there. My whole point about these offers is that people got really creative. It wasn't just about the money. They were trying to do all these perks to get Catfish Hunter. And before, free, before the final numbers came in, people thought he might sign for two, three, four hundred thousand dollars And instead, he was getting these offers of two, three, four million dollars. 
And they just really showed people that, man, you get a great player in the open market, he's going to bring in money. And this is what players have been talking about, that if they could get in the open market, they can make more money. So he eventually signed with um, the Yankees for five years, $3.75 million, and they weren't the favorites. I mean, the, I mean George Steinbrenner owned the team, but uh, the Yankees didn't have that really cachet of just doling out contracts and people wanting to go to the Yankees and make money. But what helped the Yankees is that they had a scout for them named Clyde um, Klutz, um, Klutz or Klutz, and... He had actually signed Hunter for Oakland many years ago, and he had a good relationship with Hunter. And so he he convinced him to sign with the Yankees. So he signed with the Yankees for five years, $3.7 million total. So he had, he got 100000 a year for five years. Half of it was deferred. And he had 15 years um, where he'd get 100000 a year until 1994. He also got $25,000 college endowments for his kids and a new Buick every year for five years. And so that's what he signed for. So, and it wasn't the biggest offer. Like I said, the Padres had offered him $4 million. But uh, that was the first time where people were like, whoa, players can make money and free agency. Um, and, and so that was kind of a big deal. Um, the next year is what really brought free agency into baseball. And so... Uh, what happened in the next year is you had a pitcher named uh, Andy Messersmith, and he went 20 and six for LA in 1974. Um, so this is the same year that Catfish Hunter won the Cy Young. Now he could not come to an agreement with the Dodgers for a contract for the 1975 season, and LA renewed his contract for via the reserve clause. And so he got he got it reserved he got it renewed for the same amount as the, as the year before, and he went 19 and 14 that year. Now after the 75 season, he argued he was a free agent because he said, "Hey, LA can't just renew my contract perpetually. They renewed it for the one year. I played under it for one year. I should be a free agent." And the players' union agreed, and they went to arbitration against Peter Seitz. Uh, not against, but Peter Seitz was the arbitrator again. And they tried to argue that, hey, the reserve clause exists, but it's just for one year. That if if if, there, if teams are allowed to renew a player's contract every year, that's restraint of trade. They can't do that. And there was concern amongst the players and Marvin Miller that the Dodgers would end up paying off Andy Messersmith because the owners weren't completely dumb. They realized that, if free agency came to baseball, they'd have to pay a lot more money. And so there was concern that Messersmith would potentially end up uh, coming to terms with the Dodgers. So they added another pitcher onto this um, case, and that was Dave McNally. Now, Dave McNally had been a really good pitcher for the Orioles. He got, won 181 games for them from 1962 to 74. Um, he, he played and pitched in 12 games for Montreal in 1975 before he retired. And now he was added to the grievance um, as a second party to ensure that, like I said, Messersmith wouldn't agree to a deal. So they had two players on this grievance. So just to make sure that, hey, if Messersmith tried to get out of it, they still had McNally on it. Now, McNally had no intention of actually playing. He had really retired. He wanted to help out, you know, the union and be part of it. And so and so what happened was the, the ruling, or this came... This case came to Peter Seitz, and Peter Seitz ruled that they were free agents. 
And that if a player played the option year, the reserve clause year, played that out, they would be free agents. And, and, and that just absolutely horrified baseball. And actually, the, the owners fired Peter Seiss after that. Because I think the players and the owners had to agree upon the arbitrator. And so the owners didn't like Seitz's decision, and they fired him. But it was binding. The players and owners had agreed to binding arbitration. The, um, the owners tried to get the, the decision overturned, and they couldn't. It, it was binding. And so players could become free agents if they played out uh, the reserve clause. Now, owners are really scared about that. They didn't want the players to be free agents every year. Um, and, and then they talk about this in the documentary, and Marvin Miller was so smart. And he realized that if free agents, if everybody became a free agent every year, you would have more supply for demand. And that would actually keep players' salaries down. And actually, Charlie Finley pushed the owners to offer players contracts where they would be one-year contracts and they could be free agents every year. Because Charlie Finley knew that would help us out, but the owners couldn't see the genius in that. The owners didn't want that. They wanted to control players for a certain amount of time. And so then Marvin Miller and the, and the players' union said, okay, what we'll do is we will give you six years. You can control players for six years. After that, um, they become free agents. And the owners agreed to that. But the, what, how that helped the players is that now they just get a, you know, every six years you get a small amount of free agents that, that come onto the market. Bidding goes up for these um, players because the, the supply is little and, the, and the, the demand is high. And so had the owners agreed that players could become free agents every year, prices would have stayed down. Now, I'm sure at some point the players union would have probably tried to negotiate that away. But um, that was a big mistake by the owners and very shrewd by the Players Association. Um, initially, there was a re-entry draft to get a player. And so um, what would happen was players that were free agents, you'd have a draft and teams would draft the right to bargain with them. And so a player could only be drafted by 12 clubs. And so they do this draft. And so, like, for example, Reggie Jackson was one of the first players in this free agent class and so if you wanted to negotiate with Reggie Jackson you had to draft the rights to negotiate with him um, if a player was drafted by three or more teams only those teams could negotiate with them if only two teams drafted the rights to a player or less anyone could talk to them so that that lasted up until 1981 and that doesn't exist now and so how that the actual current system works is that um, teams own the rights to a player for six years. In the first three years, teams can essentially pay a player what they want to, as long as it's the league minimum. And then the next three years, um, if the players and the teams can't come to an agreement, they go to arbitration. And uh, they uh, they pick a price. And so for, a good example is that this just happened um, right now in baseball. It, it, um, they just went through the arbitration process. So Ian Happ is a player for the Cubs. He wanted like $4.1 million. The Cubs, I think, wanted to pay him like 3.2, 3.3, something like that. And they couldn't come to an agreement on a middle ground. What happened was they went to arbitration. Ian Happ presented his case of why he should make 4.1. Um, the owner or the, the Cubs presented why he should only get paid 3.2 or 3. 
And then the arbitrator listened, and then he ruled. He actually ruled that Hap has to get paid $4 million. So the Cubs are paying him $4.1 million this year. And so the players and teams do that for years four, five, and six. And then they become free agents. And they can negotiate with anybody they want. Now they can obviously agree to a contract. So if, if a player plays their first year and they want to sign a 10-year contract with their team, they can do that. Um, but they can't negotiate with other teams until after those six years. Now, one, one issue that's going on right now is service time manipulation. And so what that means is that um, there's 187 days in a season. Not games, but days. And a, a, a player needs 172 days on the major league roster to get a year of service time. So what teams have been doing lately is, is they'll keep a player down in AAA for the first two weeks of the season and then call him up. And that year doesn't count against their service time. So they essentially get seven years of control now. And that's a, that's a big deal right now in, in negotiations. Um, that's going to probably have to be bargained out. But anyways, that is how free agency came. And then after, so after, after the 1975 season, players could become free agents. And they, they negotiated that, you know, that the decision happened after the 75 season. And um, it, it took them all the way through the seven, end of this 1976 season to come up with the parameters of free agency. And then after the 76 season, they really had um, that first free agent market. And... That first free agent market was actually really one of the, the top, um, a lot of top players. Um, and like I said, with Reggie Jackson. So after the 76 season, free agency was here, here to stay. And now you could construct a winning team, not just through drafting and developing, but you could draft it through, through free agents. And that brings us to the Yankees of the late 70s, the 1976 to 78 Yankees. They're called the Bronx Zoo Yankees. Um, and they're nicknamed the Bronx Zoo because of uh, kind of the drama that went on with that team, especially between uh, Billy Martin and, and Reggie Jackson, who, who had signed as a free agent with the Yankees. Um, they didn't really get along. And uh, there's actually an incident where Billy Martin pulled Reggie Jackson from a, um, a, a game for loafing, and they got into a huge confrontation in, in, in the dugout. And so um, Martin... Um, was it would be eventually fired from the Yankees, but anyways, the Bronx Zoo Yankees. Now they were really good in 1976. Um, they won the pennant um, in 1976, and as I said, they got swept by the Reds in the World Series. And then they won the pennants again in '77 and '78. They they won 100 games both those years, and played the Dodgers in the World Series. And we'll talk about those World Series here in a couple minutes. Um, a lot of great players on the team. You had Greg Nettles, who's their third baseman, um, who put up 68 war in his career. He put up 19 war during those three seasons and had 96 home runs during their seasons. Thurman Munson, what a great catcher. Um, you know, wasn't up on par with like Johnny Bench, but maybe the best catcher in the American League at the time. He put up uh, 46 war in his career. He was the 1976 AL MVP. Really, really Randolph, a very underrated player. Um, had 65 career war at second base. You had Chris Chambliss, who played first base. Um, and uh, through 1976, 77, 78, he had a combined uh, 9.6 war in, the, in those seasons. And then you had Reggie Jackson. Reggie Jackson was not on the 76 team, but he signed with the Yankees 
1977. Put up 59 home runs total in 77-78 and adjusted OPS of 144. So good solid lineup. Had some good pitchers though as well. You had Ron Guidry who won 41 games in 1977-78. Ed Figueroa won 55 games in, in those two years. And again, you had Catfish Hunter. So Catfish Hunter had signed with the Yankees. Um, and he, he played with them. Um, again, he signed with them in 1976. He'd won 17 games for them in that 1976 season. Um, and then he kind of struggled after that. He won nine games and 12 games in 77-78 before only winning two games in 79. So he, he was still a part of these teams, but he wasn't as dominant as he was with the Oakland A's. They also had Sparky Lyle, who won the 1977 Cy Young Award as a reliever. He was 13 and 5 with 26 saves, and then they signed Goose Gossage um, after the '77 season to be their closer for 1978. And I think that's crazy. The Yankees had a guy who was the Cy Young Award winner as a reliever in '77, and they go out and sign another reliever in '78, which was Goose Gossage, and he saved 27 games in '78. So. Um, Good balance of, of pitching and hitting. Now, they're called the best team money can buy because of their. They, they did sign some free agents. They had signed Reggie Jackson and Catfish Hunter and Goose Gossage to free agent contracts. They had the perception that um, they, they only won because they signed all these free agents. And that's not really completely true. Um, Thurman Munson and Ron Guidry were drafted. And then there are other players like Chris Chambliss, Greg Nettles, Randolph, Figueroa, Lyle. They were acquired via, via trades. And so I don't know if you'd want to call them the best team money could buy. I mean, you could maybe call the Yankees the best traders of the last couple of years. Traders, not traders. Um, they just made some smart trades. And yeah, they supplemented with a couple free agents. But their team wasn't comprised mostly of free agent players. And so they made the playoffs for three straight years. And they actually played the Royals three years in a row in the ALCS. And they talk about this in 76, but they, it was a five-game series. It was still a best of five back then. And Chris Chambliss hit a walk-off home run um, to win the 1976 uh, pennant for um, the Yankees. Um, uh, and that was after the Royals had come back to tie the game, um, score three runs in the eighth. Um, anyways, the, the fans actually stormed the field, and Chambliss never touched home plate. He ran to the, the dugout because um, of, of, the, of the fans on the field, and technically he could have been called out, but the umps had ruled that he couldn't have touched home plate because of the, the crowd, and they would have given it to him anyways. Now, people forget in 1977 the Royals played again, um, Another five-game series, and the Royals were up three game or three to two in the top of the ninth. So they were three outs away from winning the pennant. The Yankees end up scoring three in the top of the ninth, and then shut the Royals out in the bottom of the ninth to win. And so two really close ALCSs that the Royals could have won. And then in 1978, uh, they they play again. Um, this time the Yankees beat the Royals in four games. Um, two of those games are one run, but really the, the, the big story for the 78 Yankees is they, they were down 14 games to the Red Sox um, in the division. They came all the way back, forced a one-game playoff, and then beat the Red Sox to win the AL East. So some three really strong battles with the Kansas City Royals.
Um, then in the World Series, I talked about in 76, they uh, got swept by the Reds. 77 is real famous for Reggie Jackson hitting three home runs in game six, which clinched the World Series, and, and that was really well covered in the documentary. Um, but it, it was actually a, a pretty close series. Um, the Yankees won games one, three, and four, and they were all really close. Game one was a four to three decision in the 12th. Game three was a two-run game, and game four was two runs. And so they could have gone either way. The Dodgers won games two and five and dominated. But it's really famous for Reggie Jackson in his three home runs. Um, in 1978, the two teams rematched. And um, that, that's the most recent time in history where there was a World Series rematch from the previous year. It's kind of interesting. Um, the Dodgers actually came out and won uh, the first two games. Yankees won game three, and game four was the real turning point. Um, the Yankees came all the way back in game four to tie the game when the Dodgers had a chance to go up three to one, and then the Yankees won in extra innings in the 10th, and then the, the Yankees just dominated games five and six. And so, um, you know, you look at those series, they're both four games to two. Um, could have gone either way, really, but the Yankees were able to do it. In 1978, that was the first of 10 consecutive years where 10 different teams won the World Series, and that had never been done before. And so a lot of people thought that with free agency coming along, that you had the same teams winning every year, but actually, once free agency came, you had different teams winning every year. So um, I think that people realized that that was the wrong assumption. New York was the last repeat winner until the 1992-93 Blue Jays. And I look at that year, uh, or excuse me, the decade. The decade of the 70s was interesting. Um, you had three straight years where the A's won. Then, then right after that, you had two years where the Reds won. And then right after that, two years where the Yankees won. So it's so tough to repeat, but it happened essentially three straight times in the 70s. And since then... Um, it has it's it's happened twice since then, you know, and and that, that that's been you know almost forty years. That's been forty years, forty five years since free agency, and so um, people again, it's still tough to repeat. And while it does seem like the best teams get the best players sometimes in free agency, you don't see the same teams winning every year. So the Yankees had three really strong years. Um, now, after 1978, what really hurt the Yankees is that their catcher, Thurman Munson, died in a plane crash. And they dropped to fourth. They did rebound to, they won 103 games in 1980, but this time the Royals beat them in the ALCS. And then they would win the pennant in 1981, but lose to the Dodgers in the World Series. Dodgers get some revenge. But then after that, they wouldn't make the playoffs again until 1995. So, um, kind of a, a nice little run there in the 70s. For the Yankees, but then uh, went on a long stretch where they they did not win. So the Bronx the Yankees um, again, not really the best team money could buy. Yes, they dabbled for agency. Yeah, just some really smart trades that put them over the top. As we head into the 1980s uh, here in Doc, tell me more. I just wanted to reiterate that. Uh, all the information that I discuss in my episodes here of Doc Tell Me More is just information that I've found in my own research, whether through on the internet, through um, past 
you know, what documentaries or past clips I've watched, and and they're all just too, really too numerous to um, cite here. But um, you know, a couple of them do include stats at BaseballReference.com, documentaries from the Society of American Baseball Research, also called Saber, and just other articles on the internet. And so, um, again, I do just want to reiterate that that this is not all just coming from my my head, but just anything that anybody can find here on the internet. My goal is just to bring it to you here in, in one resource so you don't have to do the research. So 1980 World Series was interesting just because, I, in my opinion, just because it was a cool matchup with different teams. So you had the Philadelphia Phillies against the Kansas City Royals. And the, the Phillies um, hadn't really been successful um, throughout their history. They'd won a pennant in 1915. They'd won another pennant in 1950. That was the WizKids team. Now, other, than, other than that, they'd had um, some pretty miserable finishes. And, and really since 19, from 1950 to 1973, they were pretty much last, next to last, or in the bottom of the half of their, of their division. Uh, and, and really at this point in 1980, they were the only one of the uh, 16 teams, they called the original 16 teams, but at least the 16 teams that um, uh, were in play during the merger in 1903 when the World Series started. Um, they were the only team up in, uh, uh, excuse me, whew, kind of stumbling here, but they were the only team of those original 16 teams in 1980 that hadn't won a World Series yet. Um, and so, they, like I said, they've been, they've been pretty bad. In the, in the mid-70s, they started to get a lot better. They'd finished um, second and third in 1975 and 1974. And then they really broke through and they won their division three straight times from 1976 through 1978. Now, unfortunately for them, they ran into the big red machine in 1976 and got swept. And then in 77, 78, they lost both of those years to the Dodgers. But um, compared to their history, this was a really good, strong decade for the Phillies. And then again in 1980, they uh, won their division again. And then they ended up playing Houston in a very exciting um, NLCS. They actually clinched their division on the last weekend of the season. And then actually Houston had to beat the Dodgers in a one-game playoff for the NL West. So two exciting division finishes. And that was just the precursor for one of the most exciting National League Championship Series of all time. So, again, they were playing a best-of-five series. And uh, the Phillies won game one, uh, three to one, close win. And then Houston came right back and won game two and game three, both of those in extra innings. Um, Philly came back. And tied it in Game 4, winning in extra innings as well. And then the Phillies also ended up winning Game 5 in extra innings. So you had five games in a best of five series. The last four all went into extras. And so it really could have gone either way. But the Phillies end up winning, um, again, the last two games in 10 innings to clinch their um, third ever pennant. Um and so they were led by a couple of big-time players. Uh, the first one was Mike Schmidt, who was their third baseman. 
he had hit 48 home runs in 1980, and he was actually the MVP of the National League. 121 RBIs, an adjusted OPS of 171, um, put up almost nine WAR. Um, he he was drafted by the Phillies in 1971. Originally drafted as a shortstop, and he played his entire career from 1972 to 1989 with the Phillies. He's really one of the premier home run hitters and third baseman in, in the majors during his time. He led the National League in home runs eight times. Um, he ended up hitting 548 home runs um, for the F Phillies in his career. He was actually a three-time MVP. His career-adjusted OPS was 148. So again, that means he was 48% better than average. And then he had put up 106 war in his career. So really good player. as a Hall of Fame player. He was in the middle of the, the Phillies lineup. And then they were led from a pitching standpoint by Steve Carlton. Now he had pitched for some of those Cardinals teams in the 60s. Um, he pitched for the Cardinals from 1965 to 71. Pretty solid pitcher. Won 77 games. And then he was traded to the Phillies after 1971. Um, he was pretty unhappy about that, and that really likely motivated him because he took it to another level his career when he got to Philadelphia in 1972. He won the Cy Young in 1972, and he won the Triple Crown as well. And that was the first of four Cy Youngs he won while a member of the Phillies. Ended up winning 241 games for the Phillies, and he played for the Phillies from 1972 to 1986. Led the National League in wins four times, K's five times, complete games three times. For his career, he won 329 uh, games. He struck out over 4,000 hitters. He was the second person to do that, and he was in the Hall of Fame. And in 1980, he had won a Cy Young. He was 24-9. He had won uh, He had a war of 10.2. And he led the National League in, in wins and strikeouts. And so one, really one of the best pitchers of his era and even all time. And he was the ace of the Phillies. Um, Phillies also had Tug McGraw, who was their closer. He's actually the father of singer Tim McGraw. Had 100, 180 career saves, 20 saves in 1980. And then the last person I want to mention is Pete Rose. Pete Rose, who was the you know, big-time member of the Big Red Machine in the 70s. He had signed with the Phillies after the 1978 season, and it had you know had an okay season. He had 185 hits, 282 batting average, but um, he was on that Phillies team. And so again, they were facing the Royals. The Royals were really one of the more successful expansion teams of all time. They were started in 1969. Um, then they 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 were pretty successful um, early on. Um, by 1976, they had won a, a division title, and they won three straight division titles in 76 through 78, just like the Phillies did. Um, and we already already mentioned this when talking about the Yankees, but they lost to the Yankees and all three of those ALCSs, but two of them um, in New York's last at bat. So they could have very easily won a couple more pennants there. But here they were in their 12th year, um, doing really well. And looking for their first World Series championship. This was obviously their first pennant. So just again, a, a different, uh, you had the Phillies, Royals. You know, for people who like different teams playing and not seeing the Yankees or the Dodgers play over and over again, this would have been a delight, I'm sure. Now, the, the Royals had a third baseman of their own named George Brett. And he was the MVP in 1980. Um, he had hit 24 home runs. 
He had put up nine war. He actually had batted 390 on the year. He was hitting 400 as late as September 19th um, before he kind of um, uh, faded a little bit. Had an adjusted OPS of 203. So again, that means he was about twice as good as the average player. Had 175 hits. Now, he was drafted by Kansas City in 1971, just one pick ahead of Mike Schmidt. He also played his entire career um, for the Royals, so from 73 to 93. And so Brett and Schmidt were really two of the best third basemen in the game. Drafted the same year, one pick apart. Um, both were MVPs in 1980. I just think it's fascinating that they faced off with each other. Um, he, for his career, was a great player. He had over 3,000 hits, had 317 home runs, lifetime batting after 305. Also had 201 stolen bases. Put up 88 war, and he was in the Hall of Fame as well. He led the American League in hits three times, triples uh, three times, doubles two times, batting average three times, slugging three times, and OPS three times. So a good all-around player. Um, so him and Brett, or him and Schmidt got to face off in this series. Willie Wilson was another great player for the, the Royals. He had actually put up eight and a half war in 1980, and he led the American League in runs. And hits. He had 230 hits, triples, and uh, he also had 79 stolen bases, batted 326 as well. Um, great year. For his career, had 46 war and 668 uh, stolen bases. And uh, their best pitcher is Larry Aguirre. Um, put up six war, was 18 and 10 on the season, and an all star. So, this was the first World Series uh, since 1920. Um, and it's actually the most recent where neither team uh, had a previous World Series title. And so this can only happen um, with a few teams right now. So, for example, off the top of my head, like the Mariners haven't won one before in the American League. Uh, the Rangers haven't won one either. Um, the Rockies and the National League haven't won one. The Brewers and the National League haven't won one. Um, so, so those teams would have to play each other for this to happen again. I might be missing another team or two off the top of my head, but those are just two, some that come to mind. So I'm sure this was an, this was an exciting series. Um, uh, and and pre pretty pretty close series. Uh, the Phillies won game one and, and, and jumped out to a pretty early lead. Um, and then they ended up winning game two as well. Um, Kansas City comes back and wins the next two games. They walk off game three to win four to three. They win game four, uh, five to three after getting out to an early lead. Uh, game five was really close. Uh, the Phillies scored two in the top of the ninth to end up winning four to three. And then the Phillies ended up um, in game six winning four to one. So a couple really close games there and some last at bats. But the Phillies do end up winning in six games. Uh, game six is actually the most watched game in World Series history. Uh, as I kind of alluded to earlier, the Phillies were the last of the original 16 teams to win the World Series. And so, again, when I say original, we're talking about the 16 National League or American League teams that were around when the World Series started. I don't like to use the term um, original 16 because, as we know, as we've talked about in this podcast, there were... Um, a lot of teams in the 1800s, a lot of great players. Um, 
that played before the Mer before the World Series was around. And so I think by saying the original 16, we're not doing justice by those um, teams that existed before the World Series, but it is called the original 16. Um, Willie Wilson, he'd only struck out 81 times the entire season. He ended up striking out 12 times um, in the World Series, which is a World Series record. So 12 times in a six-game series after striking out 81 times over the course of a season. Um, Lonnie Smith played for the Phillies, and he won the World Series. And I just wanted to um, say his name. Um, we're going to come back to that name, Lonnie Smith. But he won. He was on the Phillies that won. Um, the Phillies would end up winning the pennant again in 1983. And then they ended up losing to the Orioles that year. Um, the Royals would win the pennant again in 1985. And we're going to discuss that World Series later. But 1980, Phillies um, end up... Uh, winning the World Series, winning their first World Series title. 1981 season was a, kind of a weird season. It was unique in that the baseball used a split season format to determine a champion. And what that means is there's a first half of the season and a second half of the season. Um, and then the first half champion, as they called it, of would... Um, get a playoff berth. So if, if you won your division in the first half of the season, you go to the playoffs. And if you then in the second half of the season, the standings would reset. And if you won your division um, in the second half, you would get to go to the playoffs as well. Now, the reason why this happened was because there was a seven-week strike from June 12th to August 8th. And the reason for the strike was that the owners wanted um, compensation for losing free agents. So again, free agency had been around for like six years. Owners didn't like it. Uh, they just didn't want players to, to leave their team for nothing. So they wanted some sort of compensation. Um, the players didn't like that they went on strike. The owners actually were blamed for the strike. And they, they came up with a plan where eventually that if a team lost at what there was called a premium free agent, and they could be compensated by drawing from a pool of players that were unprotected from all clubs. That didn't really last too long. But uh, because of this seven-week break, baseball used this split-season format. And so um, once the strike ended, it was determined that all those teams leading their divisions when the strike happened, they were your first-half champions. And then the standings would reset for the second half of the season. So this was really beneficial to teams that uh, were, you know, in last at the end of the first half, they had a chance to um, kind of make up for the their first half of the season. It was not good for teams that were maybe in second place at the time of the strike because um, uh, they would have had more benefit of playing out the season to see if they could catch the teams that were in first place. Um, and so what would happen would be in the first and second half winners, they would end up playing each other in the division series, which was new for 1981. And then those winners would play in the championship series and then the World Series. So you had an extra round of playoffs in 1981. Now, the problem with this approach is that the two National League teams that had the best overall records in, during the year actually missed the playoffs. So the Reds actually had the best overall National League West record. The Cardinals had 
the best overall National League East record. But each of those teams finished second in both the first and second halves of the season, so they didn't make the playoffs. Um, Kansas City had the fourth best overall record in their division. Um, so they were 15-53 for the entire year, but they won the second half of the season. They did really poorly in the first half, didn't do as poorly in the second half. And so that was uh, kind of a weird, quirky way. Um, and and so it, it's just kind of a controversial year, especially in the National League, where a lot of people felt like the two best teams didn't make the playoffs. The Dodgers would end up winning the World Series by beating the Yankees in the World Series. Um, I just didn't really want to go into the World Series, but I just want to talk about that kind of unique format. Actually really common in the minor league levels, the lower minor leagues, but um, and it came to the major leagues for one year in 1981. Again, I can't really go over everything in the 80s. There, there's so many great teams. There's so many great World Series. Um, so I'm not going to hit every single World Series in detail. One thing I, I did want to talk about, though, is mention the 1984 Detroit Tigers. And that was just a really great team I wanted to highlight. Um, they ended up winning a, um, 35 out of their first 40 games. So they started out 35 and 5. And then they went, um, they didn't really coast. They went 69 and 53 the rest of the way, but they ended up winning 104 games. Um, so they just uh, really kind of got out quickly, uh, built up a huge lead, but really uh, one of the better teams in the 80s and of this era. They were led by um, future Hall of Famer Alan Trammell, who had put up six war that year. Chet Lemon put up six war. Um, Kirk Gibson uh, put up five war. Lou Whitaker was a great um, second baseman, put up four war. Uh, Jack Morris is on that team as well, won 19 games. Um, and Detroit would end up winning the World Series. They would end up playing San Diego and beat San Diego pretty easily, 5-1. to one. Now, their manager was Sparky Anderson. Sparky Anderson was the manager of the Big Red Machine. And Sparky Anderson became the first manager to win a World Series in both leagues. So Detroit Tigers was a, was a really good team one year. Um, they, didn't really, they weren't able to really maintain that success, but um, I just wanted to highlight how they got out to that really quick start. 35-5 um, is just an incredible start, obviously. But uh, 104 wins, um, last Detroit Tigers team to win the World Series as of right now. So in the 80s, though, when you're looking at who the best team was, the best organization, the best franchise was in the 80s, you know, it's Probably the Cardinals, um, or at least the Cardinals is right up there on the short list. And it might be sound like a broken record. I've talked about the Cardinals a lot. You know, they've had some really great teams throughout their their history. Um, it's true, though. Um, the Cardinals had had a, a really great 1980s. They didn't have a great 1970s. Um, and, but uh, in the 80s, they were the only team to make three World Series. Um, now, they... The way they played ball was nicknamed Whitey Ball, and that was named after their manager, Whitey Herzog. So it was all about pitching, speed, and defense. And so essentially, Herzog would have one or more base-stealing threats at the top of his lineup, and then he'd have kind of like a power threat or two, a power hitter or two below that, and then you'd have more base-stealers. So it, it was perfect for Bush Stadium 
which is artificial turf at the time. Um, and actually some more stadiums had artificial turf. So um, they wanted to put the ball into play, get on base and steal. And he really valued players that had high on base percentages. Um, and so looking at, at their team, they had a lot of speed guys. Uh, Willie McGee is a great example of this. Uh, um, and, uh, and so kind okay, of actually let me backtrack here. So they made three World Series in the 80s. And so we're going to be talking about the 1982 Cardinals, 1985 Cardinals, 1987 Cardinals. So they won three pennants, and those are the three years they won the pennants. So Willie McGee, um, you know, he'd had 24 stolen bases in 1982. Um, he had, in 1985, had a phenomenal year. We had 56 stolen bases, 18 triples, batted 353. He was the MVP in 1985. Um, and then 1987 had 16 stolen bases, 11 triples. Uh, Vince Coleman was a great player on the 1985 team. He was a rookie of the year. Stole 110 bases in 1985. Stole 107 in 1987. Um, Lonnie Smith. So we talked about Lonnie Smith um, on the 1980 Phillies. Lonnie Smith was on the 1982 Cardinals. And he stole 68 bases for them that year. But probably their best player was Ozzie Smith. Ozzie Smith put up 76 war, had over 2,400 hits. 580 stolen bases. Um, in 1982, he had 25 stolen bases, 85-31, 87-43. He's in the Hall of Fame. So they had a lot of guys that could steal and run. Uh, one of the big power hitters um, for the Cardinals was Jack Clark. Um, in 1985, he put up 22 home runs, and 1987 put up 35 home runs. And then their pitching staff, uh, Joaquin Andular. Um, was a 15-game winner in 1982, 21-game winner in 1985. John Tudor was a 21-game winner in 85, 10-game, 10-2 in 1987. Then their great closer is Bruce Suter, who had 36 saves in 82 and 23 saves in 1985. So pitching, speed, power hitters is what the Cardinals were all about in the 80s. So 1982, as I mentioned, they won the pennant, won 92 games. Uh, won the East by three games, and then they swept the Braves in the NLCS. Now they played the Milwaukee Brewers, who were 95 games. Now, the Brewers were actually in the American League at this time. They would actually flip to the National League later in the 90s. But at this point, they're in the American League. It was called the Suds Series because both teams are um, home to breweries. The You had the Anheuser-Busch Brewery in St. Louis and... Miller Brewing in Milwaukee. This was the first World Series for Milwaukee. Again, they were the Seattle Pilots for one year, and then they moved to Milwaukee in 1970. But the Milwaukee Braves had um, obviously won a World Series in the 50s and gone to two World Series. Um, they were named Harvey's Wall Bangers after their manager because they had five guys that hit over 23 home runs. Um, two best players were Robin Yout and Paul Molitor, both future Hall of Famers. Yao had a great year, um, put up 10.5 war, 29 home runs, 331 batting average, 379 on base, 578 slugging. The adjusted OPS was 166. That's really good. Paul Molitor had 6 war, 19 home runs, um, adjusted OPS of 129, batted 302. Um, this was the first World Series for the Cards since 1968. Uh, Again, in contrast to the Brewers, they only hit 67 home runs in the entire year for their team. And again, 
Uh, Milwaukee had five guys over 23. So this was a great as a seven-game World Series, and actually all these World Series I'm going to talk about with the Cardinals were seven games. Uh, game one, Milwaukee just blew um, the Cardinals out 10 to nothing, and they jumped out to a, a lead in game two. Um, the Cardinals ended up tying the game, then going ahead in the eighth and, and, and edging out Milwaukee five to four. Um, Cardinals won pretty handily. Uh, six to two in game three, and then the Cardinals jumped out to a five to one lead in game four. They were looking like they're going to go up three to one. Milwaukee ends up scoring six runs in the seventh inning to win that and tie the series at two games apiece. Milwaukee comes back and wins game five, six to four. So then the Cardinals were on the edge or of elimination, and they go out and blow up Milwaukee thirteen to one. And so we go to a game seven. Uh, Milwaukee is up three to one. They're eleven outs from the title. Um, Cardinals end up scoring three runs in the bottom of the six to take the lead, and they end up winning six to three. So a great back and forth World Series between two teams. Cardinals win the World Series in 1982, and Lonnie Smith gets his second World Series um, with his second team. And so we'll keep track of him. He's going to come up later. So 1985, Cardinals end up winning 101 games. Um, they win their NL East by three games again. And then um, they face the Dodgers in the National League Championship Series. The Dodgers actually jumped out and won the first two games. And this is now when it, it had switched to a best of uh, seven now. So you had to win four games to, uh, to go to the World Series. Um, the Cardinals end up coming back winning games three and four. And Ozzie Smith, who was not um, a home run hitter at all, home run threat, he only hit 28 home runs in his entire career, but he hits a walk-off home run over in Game 5. Um, and then Game 6 was close. The Cardinals were down 5-4 um, to four, uh, with two outs to go. And then Jack Clark hits a three-run home run. The Cardinals end up winning the game 7-5. to five. And then they end up winning the series and going on to the World Series. Uh, they will end up in the World Series taking on their in-state rival, the Kansas City Royals. Um, the Royals had won um, the LCS 4-3 to against Toronto. They'd come back from a 3-1 to deficit to winning the pennant. Uh, this was called the Show Me Series or the I-70 Showdown Series these two teams that were in Missouri. Um, and uh, this was actually the, the second All-Missouri World Series. If you think back to 1944, the Cardinals and the St. Louis Browns had played an All-St. Louis World Series. That was uh, the first All-Missouri World Series. This was the second one. Now, Lonnie Smith played in this World Series again, but he was a member of the Royals this time. He had been traded, actually, during the season from the Cardinals to the Royals. This was the first time that somebody played a team that traded him um, during the season. So Cardinals Royals. Uh, Cardinals uh, won the first game three to one, and then they end up scoring uh, four runs with two outs in the ninth to win game two. Royals come back and win game three pretty easily. Cardinals win game four. So the Cardinals are excuse me, the Royals go down three to one just like they did in the ALCS. 
They come back and win game five. And game six is the game that everybody talks about in this World Series called the Don Deckinger game. So in this game, if the Cardinals win the game, they're World Series champs. And we go to the ninth inning, and the Cardinals are up 1-0. to zero. And so the first batter of the inning, named uh, Jorge Orta, he hits a slow roller to Jack Clark. Um, at first base, he tosses it to the pitcher covering first. And the umpire, Don Deckinger, calls him safe. Now he was partially obstructed by the runner. But he was uh, the runner was clearly out. And we, sometimes we can look at why do we have replay in baseball. It can slow things down. Well, replay would have really helped out here. So he was called safe. Um, should have been called out. Um, so the game goes on. Next batter, Steve Balboni, has a pop-up uh, pop into foul territory. And Jack Clark loses the ball, and it drops. And so then Balboni singles. And then they end up trying to sacrifice, but it doesn't work out. So they have runner on, runners on first and second with one out. A pass ball moves the runners up to second and third. So the Cardinals intentionally walk. The base is loaded. So the bases are loaded, one out. And then uh, the Royals end up hitting a single to walk it off. Two runs score to uh, force a game seven. And so... A lot of controversy if, if that call is called correctly. Do maybe the Cardinals win in game six? But it would at the same time it would have been just one out. Maybe the Royals come back and, and tie it anyways. When the Cardinals went back to their locker room, the champagne was actually there, ready for them to celebrate them winning. Um, but it'd have to wait. They go to game seven and Kansas City takes full advantage of the situation. They go up five to one. And then in the fifth inning, they, they just really open it up to make it 10 to nothing. Whitey Herzog was ejected from the game. And he apparently told Don Denkinger, who was actually calling balls and strikes that night, you know, he, he apparently said to him, we wouldn't have been here if you hadn't missed the bleeping call last night. And then supposedly Don Denkinger said back to him, well, if you guys weren't hitting up 120 in the World Series, we wouldn't be here. So um, pretty quick whip. Um, so he ended up ejecting pitcher Joaquin uh, Andular as well. He ended up charging at Denkinger and had to be restrained. He was actually suspended for the first 10 games of the next season. Um, Kansas City goes on to win um, 11 to nothing, wins the World Series. Um, Denkinger received death threats. Um, some St. Louis DJs revealed his number and home address. And he would get threatening letters that continued actually through 1987. So just kind of too bad that that whole situation had to happen. So just remember now, anytime you have an instant replay, that, that if you're watching a baseball game that takes forever, just know that, hey, you want to get the call right. Um, the Royals uh, came back from a 3-1 deficit to win the World Series after doing that in the LCS. Um, they're the first, this was the first time, though, when the home team lost the first two games. Um, the Royals have won six elimination games, um, which is tied for the major league record for a single postseason, tied with the 2012 Giants. And uh, they only scored uh, 13 runs, and they had, the Cardinals did, and they had a batting average of 185. And then Lonnie Smith ends up winning his third World Series um, with his third different team. Um, no one else has done that before um, or since. And we're not done yet with Lonnie Smith. So just keep him in the back of your mind still. And so the Cardinals end up 
um, coming being back in the World Series in 1987. They won 95 games. They won the NL East by three games. So this is the third time um, they've won three games. Excuse me, the division by three games in this entire decade. They did it in 82 and 85. They beat the Giants in seven games to go to the NLCS. And they get to face the Minnesota Twins, who were not that impressive from a record record standpoint. Only won 85 games on the year. It's their first World Series since 1965 when Harmon Killebrew was leading them. They were the first team to enter the World Series having been outscored during the course of the season. Now, uh, the Cardinals were really affected by injuries to Jack Clark and Terry Pendleton. And so uh, they were not at full strength. Series goes the full seven games. Game seven is uh, tied the sixth inning. And there was uh, the Cardinals were a victim of, of another bad call. Um, the umpires ruled um, a, a St. Louis Cardinals runner out when they should have been safe, and they end up not scoring. And then the, Card- the Twins end up actually winning 4-2 to overall. I mean, the call might not have mattered at all, but I just found that as a fascinating footnote. And so the Twins win in seven. All seven games were won by the home team, and none of the games actually needed the bottom of the ninth inning. It's kind of weird. Uh, the Twins' record was the worst for a World Series champ until 2006 when... Coincidentally, that the Cardinals won the World Series. Um, but after this World Series, the Cardinals' dominance of the 80s was done. They did not win the division again until 1996 and didn't win a pennant until 2004. Um, then, as I said, a World Series until 2006. There are some controversies, though, in this World Series. Um, so the Twins played in the Metrodome, which is an indoor stadium. And there have been some allegations that um, the Twins piped in crowd noise to make it really loud. And um, another rumor where a Metrodome technician adjusted the air conditioning fans when the Twins were at bat, um, where he'd blow them out to try to um, give the home run balls a little bit more push. None of that has been confirmed, but a lot of people feel like um, that actually happened. But... Either way, the Twins are in the record books as the year 1987 uh, World Series champions. So one of the most important things, or maybe not most important, but one of the more interesting things, in my opinion, that happened in the 1980s was collusion. And it was a pretty, uh, pretty big part in terms of baseball history, in terms of the impact it had. And I think it's something that's, hasn't been as well known to casual fans. Become a little bit more known right now just because of how um, bad labor negotiations are right now between the players and the owners. But collusion was an incident that happened in the 1980s. And so if we think back to baseball history, the owners have always been trying to lower salaries. One example is in 1918, and I mentioned this in, in, in the earlier podcast from a few episodes ago, But in 1918, the owners released all their players with kind of a gentleman's agreement not to sign each other's players. That way they could force down salaries. Um, So the owners have never been shy of trying different things to keep salaries low. So in 1966, Sandy Koufax and Don Drysdale, the two great pitchers for the Dodgers, 
held joint negotiations with the Dodgers and ended up signing the two largest contracts in baseball history. Now that's significant because in 1968, when the collective bargaining agreement was bargained between the owners and the players, the owners didn't want other players to negotiate together. They were scared of that. And Marvin Miller agreed to that as long as the owners wouldn't work together themselves. And so in the collective uh, collective bargaining agreement, it says players shall not act in concert with other players and Cubs shall not act in concert with other clubs. So, and that's true to this day. Clubs cannot talk to other clubs about what offers they're going to make, about their free agent strategy. Um, They can't do that because... If they did, the clubs could collude and agree um, to only certain offers. So if they all know what offers they're making to other free agents, they don't have to try to outbid each other um, significantly for free agents. So it was it was illegal to collude, and that was determined back in the 60s. But the 1985 owners meeting, so about 10 years after free agency, the owners decided that um, they were willing to take the risk to collude in order to keep salaries down. So they agreed at the 1985 meeting, owners' meetings that position players would only get three-year deals max. Pitchers would get two-year deals. But the big thing was that players wouldn't be allowed to change teams unless their previous team was fine with it. So, so if a team wanted to keep a free agent... They pretty much let the other teams know, and no other teams would give any offers. Uh, Commissioner Uberoth, Peter Uberoth at the time, said that signing players to long-term contracts was dumb. And then uh, Lee McPhail told the owners to not be swayed by the pressure from fans and media to spend money. So they decided to work together to um, collude and keep salaries down. So in 1985, there were 35 free agents, only four changed teams. Um, Kirk Gibson was the big star. He had hit 29 home runs and had 30 stolen bases, had an adjusted OPS of 140. Um, He led the Tigers to the 1985 World Series. Now, initially, the Royals really went aggressively after him. Um, And then all of a sudden, they, they stopped recruiting him. And so it suggested that they stopped recruiting him and stopped trying to sign him after the owners' meetings when the owners decided to collude. Um, George Steinbrenner offered Carlton Fisk a contract who played for the White Sox but withdrew it after the, the White Sox owner called George Steinbrenner. And so the other big stars like Tommy John and Phil Necro received no offers. And so the Players' Union then filed a grievance. So that's called Collusion 1 was 1985. 1986, um, same thing happened. There's only four agents that switched teams. The most notable one that switched teams was Andre Dawson. But, and he was at the Expos, and he was tired of playing in Montreal. But no teams would offer him any money. So he really wanted to play for the Cubs. And the reason why he wanted to play for the Cubs was because he wanted to play on natural grass. Whereas in Montreal is an artificial turf. And so he went to the Cubs and gave them a blank contract and said, fill in the amount that you want and I'll play. Now he did this 
because he wanted to control where he wanted to go. He didn't want the owner to control where he was going to go. He didn't want to play in Montreal anymore. He knew if he offered the Cubs a blank contract, they would have to sign with something because he was a great player. And so he signed a one-year contract and actually took a pay cut. But part of that was to prove a point in that Andre Dawson should have been in a, in a lot higher demand than he was. But because he wasn't, that was some evidence of collusion. He ended up winning the 1987 MVP with the Cubs. Three-fourths of the free agents that year in 1986 signed one-year contracts. Some of the big-time stars that didn't move were Jack Morris, Tim Raines, Ron Guidry, and Doyle Alexander. It was the first time since the start of free agency that the average major league salary declined. And Commissioner Uberoth ordered owners to tell him if they offered contracts over three years. So that was collusion two. There's a grievance there. And uh, collusion three happened in the 1987 season. And so this time the owners created an information bank to share info about what offers they were giving. Um, Paul Molitor, Jack Clark, and Dennis Martinez were affected by this. So um, collusion one, the first grievance, was um, ruled by an arbitrator in 1988 that the owners had colluded, and he ordered the owners to pay the players $10.5 million in damages. Um, and he also awarded seven players new-look free agents. They could go test free agency if they wanted to. Kirk Gibson ended up doing this, and he signed for, with the Dodgers for three years. The next year, 1989, Collusion 2 was settled in favor of the players. The owners were ordered to give $38 million to the players. And then their $64 million in damages were um, awarded in Collusion 3. Um, and then there's finally, there's, there's one final settlement in 1990 where the owners agreed to pay the players $280 million um, in damages. And so the owners colluded for three seasons. They got caught, and uh, a lot of the owners actually, if, if some of the, the owners that are still around, um, still deny that collusion happened, but it did. Now, collusion was significant for a number of reasons. One is that the labor issues of the 90s that we'll get in in our next episode um, really started because of collusion, and, the and that really had big impacts on the 1994 strike. But also, Commissioner Faye Vincent, so he was two commissioners after Peter Uberoth, he claimed that the expansion in the 90s, so that was four teams, the Florida Marlins, the Colorado Rockies, the Arizona Diamondbacks, and Tampa Bay Devil Rays, that expansion was used to pay for the damages of collusion. So, uh, my, you know, my assumption is expansion would have happened at some point, but the way I interpret his comments are that had they expanded specifically to get money um, to pay the players. And so because of collusion, four new teams ended up joining the major leagues over the, the 1990s. Now, Marvin Miller said that, you know, collusion was tantamount to fixing three pennant races because for three off seasons, teams agreed essentially to not improve. And because you're not trying to improve, you're fixing pennant races. And he says it's worse than 1919 Black Sox because they just fixed the one World Series. Now, the crazy thing is um, the owners were really dumb. And I think I read this from, I can't remember who I read this from, but I 100% agree with this. 
the owners could have gotten away with this had they not gone so far, you know? When, I mean, when, when star players aren't getting any offers, it's clear that something is wrong. The owners could have created an information bank and they said, they could have said, hey, you know, there's certain players we want to keep, you know, like, like if, if you were the Tigers and you wanted to keep Kirk Gibson, they could have said, hey, we want to keep Kirk Gibson. This is what we're going to offer him. Okay. You guys offer something less. Or maybe if there were certain free agents that they let other teams sign, they could have maybe gotten away with it a little bit. I mean, I'm sure they would have been exposed at some point, but I'm just, I'm just blown away by the audacity and the stupidity of the owners to think that, hey, if we just don't sign anybody, we'll keep our players and nobody will know the difference. No, they they clearly were caught and I really bit a black eye for them. And, and I think you, that's why you see in professional baseball compared to other sports, if you see strikes happen a lot more often and really poisonous labor relations. And it's because of incidents like this. But um, it's really a dark way to end the decade of the 1980s. Last thing we're going to talk about here in, in this podcast is the 1990s, the early 1990s. Again, this documentary goes right up until 1993, 94, so we'll end up here talking about some really um, important things or just interesting things in the 1990s, some things that stuck out. I think the 1990 Cincinnati Reds are a really interesting team. Now, they were the first National League team to go wire to wire which means they were in first place um, every day of the season. The, actually, the 84 Tigers, who I talked about, um, were the other team to do that. But the Reds started off 9-0 and 41-21, 191 games. Um, ended up winning the National West by five games, beat the Pirates um, in six games in the NLCS. Now, they went into the World Series um, facing the Heavily favored A's. The A's were the defending champions, and they actually won three straight pennants. Um, but the Reds are known for the Nasty Boys, which was their um, relief pitchers. Uh, really strong bullpen. They had Randy Myers, who had 31 saves. Rob Dibble had 11, and Norm Charlton had two saves. Um, those are the three main ones, Myers, Dibble, and, and, and Carlton. Charlton. Um, now Rob Dibble says that they had two other relievers, Tim Leana and Tim, um, versus should also be considered part of the nasty boys. Either way though, the Cincinnati Reds had a really, really strong bullpen. They pitched eight and two thirds, um, innings in the world series, gave up no earned runs. Rob Dibble ended up winning game two and Randy Myers saved game four. So strong bullpen, had some great hitters as well. Barry Larkin who is in the Hall of Fame. He put up a 5.7 war that year, batted 301. Um, had 70 war for his career, 198 home runs, and over 2,300 hits. It's a great shortstop for the Reds. Um, Eric Davis um, put up 24 home runs, 21 stolen bases um, in his career. Um, was a really a, a true 30-30 type of threat, which... Um, he joined the 30-30 club in, in 1987, had 37 home runs, 50 stolen bases. And actually, the year before that, he hit 27 home runs and had 80 stolen bases. So, kind of a true five-tool player. 
Um, he put a, he put three war um, in in that year. Um, in the World Series, he's four for fourteen, five RBIs and a home run. He actually had to leave the series when he fell chasing a fly ball and ball and lacerated his kidney. Pretty, that was pretty painful. His career actually was never the same after that. Um, he through 1990, he had 166 home runs, 233 stolen bases. Um, you know, after that, he ended up with 282 home runs and 349 stolen bases, but really wasn't the same after that. Um, Chris Sabo, another good player for the Reds, uh, put up 25 home runs and 25 stolen bases. Best pitcher was Jose Rijo, was 14-8 and eight, um, that year. Adjusted ERA of 148 and 5.7 war. And then another player on the team, Ken Griffey Sr., was on the team. Um, I just find it interesting in that he played on their World Series winners in the 70s with the Big Red Machine. He ended up coming back, and he played in 1990, but he only played 46 games. He was actually released in August. He didn't get a chance to play in the World Series. Um, he ended up signing with Seattle to play with his son, Ken Griffey Jr. Um, he actually got a ring for the 1990 team, but really had no, didn't play in the World Series. Wasn't really a key factor on their team, but I just found it interesting. He was on the team. Um, the, the Reds would end up sweeping the A's um, in four games, and it was the fifth time there was a four-game sweep by the National League. Um, Jose Rijo was your MVP. He was 2-0. Pitched 15 and one-thirds inning, only one earned run, 14 Ks, five walks. And so I think an underappreciated team, the 90 Reds, went wire to wire. Aren't really remembered, I think, for a lot, any, as much as they should be because um, I think they were, they, were, they were underdogs that kind of pulled up this improbable sweep. And then they didn't really build upon it and, and win anymore in the 90s, but a good team. 1991 World Series is a uh, you know really exciting World Series and it's considered one of the uh, most exciting World Series of all time. Uh, yeah, the Minnesota Twins back in it. Um, they'd won 95 games that year, playing the Atlanta Braves. So the Braves had moved to Atlanta from Milwaukee, um, and they had won 94 games on the year. Uh, first game was the uh, the one that wasn't the was the was uh, the Least closest. I don't think that's a phrase actually, but Minnesota won five to two. All the other games would be closer than that. Well, that's actually not true. It was a, game five wasn't close either. But Minnesota won five to two. I guess is my point. Not as much drama. Game two though was tied in the eighth, and then the Twins scored in the bottom of the eighth. Won three to two. Uh, games uh, game three was close in the eighth. It was tied four to four. And the Braves would walk it off in the bottom of the 12th. Game four, the Braves would walk it off in the ninth. So you have back-to-back walk-off wins um, before the Braves ended up dominating um, game five, 14-5. Um, so again, you have the home teams winning every game. Game six was a tied again late. And then Kirby Puckett walks it off with a home run in the 11th. Game seven's an all-time classic. was 0-0 through the ninth. Um, went to extra innings, um, and then the Twins walk it off with a one nothing win. In 10 innings, Jack Morris um, ends up pitching uh, a 10-inning complete game shutout in Game 7 of the World Series. You talk about um, 
toughness and guts and ice water in the veins. That's what Jack Morris was. He had won the World, a World Series with the Tigers in 84. He was the MVP in 1981, 1991, excuse me. Um, and uh, uh, he, he went 2-0 in Game 1 uh, by winning Game 1 and Game 7. Had a no decision in Game 4. Had 23 innings pitched. Um, three earned runs, uh, 15 Ks, and nine walks. So a great road series. Minnesota wins their second road series. Um, the other one being in 1987, where they beat the Cardinals. And that leads us to the 1992 to 1993 Toronto Blue Jays. And the Blue Jays were the best team when I started really paying attention to baseball. So I was seven years old in 1992 and eight in 1993. This was the best team in baseball when I started paying attention. Um, now they were the Blue Jays were one of two teams that actually came about because of expansion in 1977. Now originally the San Francisco Giants were actually going to move to Toronto. Um, they were sold to a Toronto-based group that was going to move them to Toronto, but a U.S. court stepped in and nixed it, and they ended up staying in San Francisco. Uh, so Toronto ended up getting an, ex an expansion franchise, and they came in with the Mariners, who um, I mentioned in the last episode, it was a compromise that Seattle would get a team after the Seattle Pirates Pilots left in 1969. And the Blue Jays struggled like most expansion teams, lost over 100 games in their first three years. Um, but by their seventh year, they were over 500, which was a streak of 11 straight years, they were over 500. It won the AL East in 85, 89, and 91, but couldn't win the pennant. And then finally they broke through. They won back-to-back -back pennants in 92 and 93. Some of their best players were Roberto Alomar. Um, and in between these two years, he put up 12 war, 25 home runs, 104 stolen bases, batted 318. Devon White in those two years had 71 stolen bases, 32 home runs, 12 war. John Olorudo was the first baseman. 40 home runs between those two years. 327 and 11 war. Joe Carter, the right fielder, had back-to-back -back 30 home run seasons. Jack Morris, who had just played with the Twins and won the World Series, went 21-6 and for the Blue Jays in 92. Uh, Pat Hentigan was a good pitcher for them in 93, won 19 games. Um, you had Juan Guzman, who won 30 games over two years for them. And Jimmy Key, who won 31 games over two years for the Blue Jays. And then you have Dave Winfield, who was a DH for them. And now you two hit 26 home runs. And Paul Molitor hit 22 home runs for them um, in 93. So 1992, the Blue Jays played the Braves. Um, Braves going to their second straight World Series. This was the first World Series outside of the United States. Um, Toronto lost game one. But then they ended up scoring the go-ahead runs in the ninth inning in games two and game three. So it really came back from being on the brink. Um, and then in game six, um, Toronto was up three games to two. Um, Atlanta scores in the bottom of the ninth to send the game to extra innings. So, and then uh, Toronto ends up scoring two in the top of the tenth and then um, ends up winning, uh, winning the game. Um, to clinch the World Series 4-3. Um, Cito Gaston was the first African-American player or manager to win a World Series. Now Lonnie Smith, we're back to Lonnie Smith. Now Lonnie Smith played for the Braves. So Lonnie Smith 
Um, ended up playing, um, again, for the World Series with the Phillies in 1980, where he won the World Series. He won the 1982 World Series with the Cardinals. Um, he won the 1985 World Series with the Royals, so three teams in three years. And then he ended up going to a fourth and fifth World Series with the Braves, which he lost that one. Now, I think I mentioned earlier he's the only only player to win three World Series with three different teams, and I misspoke there. What I meant to say was he's the only player to go to four World Series with four different teams. Um, and he won three of those with three of those teams, and he lost the two World Series with the Braves. But, you know, Lonnie Smith was a solid player, put up 38 war in his career, but was able to make it to a lot of World Series with a lot of different teams. Next year, the Blue Jays um, were in the World Series again. This time they're playing the Phillies. Now, what's interesting is that despite the fact that Blue Jays won the year before, they actually turned over half their roster. Um, and so they didn't necessarily bring everybody back. Um, a close World Series. Um, game four was kind of the big turning point and kind of the big game of the series. Now, Toronto was up two games to one. Um, very high-scoring game. Philly was up four to three after one. Toronto was up seven to six after three. The Phillies were up 14 to nine after seven. Looks like the game's over. Well, then Toronto scores six runs in the top of the eighth to win, and they win 15 to 14. Um, it was actually the longest World Series game. It's the most runs in a World Series game. Um, uh, but that, that was a big game, and, and the Toronto would go 3-1. to one, And then the Phillies would force a game six, but uh, um, and the Phillies would have a lead in the ninth inning, up 6-5. to five. But this is the World Series that's famous for Joe Carter. He hit a walk-off home run to win game six and clinch the World Series for the Blue Jays. Uh, the Blue Jays scored the most runs by a winning team in World Series history. They had scored 45 runs. Now, that was actually less than what the Yankees scored in 1960 when they lost to the Pirates. They had scored 55. But um, Toronto goes back-to-back. -back. Um, they haven't had a, a, a team. Well, that's not true. They're the first team to go back-to-back -back since the, the Yankees in the 70s. Um, Toronto actually wouldn't make the playoffs again for another 22 years in 2015. A um, couple interesting facts about the Blue Jays. In 1992, they weren't swept in a series all season long. That's the first time in 49 years that happened. And the 1993 team was only shut out once the entire year. So really, really strong offense there. So I'm going to end this episode talking about just one player. And... I think might be the most underrated player in Major League history. And that's Hank Aaron. And you might be listening to this and being like, what are you talking about? How can Hank Aaron be underrated? Well, underrated just means that you're not given the respect that you deserve for, the, for um, however good you were. Hank Aaron might have been the greatest baseball player of all time. But when people talk about greatest baseball players, people very rarely mention him as the greatest baseball player of all time. Let's look at his stats. So he had 143 war, which is seventh all time. He has 755 home runs, who 
um, which is number two all time. But if you're me, um, I consider him number one because of uh, the steroid uh, scandal with Barry Bonds. He had 3,771 hits. So my favorite Hank Aaron stat is that if you take away all of his home runs, all 755 home runs, he still has over 3,000 hits. That is absolutely incredible. And he's third all-time on hits. Only Pete Rose and Ty Cobb have more hits than he does. He has the most RBIs in history, which is 2,297. Uh, he has over 6,800 total bases, which is uh, just incredible, incredible amount, which is the most of all time. He has 1,477 extra base hits. So he's number one in extra base hits, number one in RBIs, number one in total bases, third all-time in hits, and in my opinion, number one all-time in home runs. Also stole 240 bases. Lifetime batting average of 305. On base at 377, which is really good. Slugging at 555. His adjusted OPS was 155. He led the National League in runs three times. Hits two times. Doubles four times. Home runs four times. RBIs four times. Batting average twice. Slugging four times. Total bases eight times. Only won one MVP, which is incredible. Three gold gloves. Made the All-Star game 25 times. And obviously a Hall of Famer. Just ridiculous numbers. Um, and I don't think we appreciate those numbers enough for how good he was. Now he grew up in Mobile, Alabama. He was born in poverty. He played with the Indianapolis Clowns of the Negro Leagues. Took him the 1952 title. Batted 366 for them. He had two contract offers from the major leagues. One from the Boston Braves. One from the New York Giants. He picked Boston because it was $50 more. If he would have signed with the Giants, he would have been teammates with Willie Mays for 20 years. Imagine that, outfield, Mays and Aaron. He originally had a cross grip, which he's a right-handed hitter. And right-handed hitters should have their left hand on the bottom and their right hand on top. He originally had his right hand on the bottom, left hand on top. But then they, they fixed that in the minors. He debuted with the Milwaukee Braves in 1954 after Bobby Thompson broke his ankle. Uh, he moved to right field in 55, and that was the first of 21 consecutive All-Star teams. Um, he homered to clinch Milwaukee's pennant in 1957. Um, he hit 393 of three home runs in the World Series win for Milwaukee. 1963, he became the third member of the 30-30 club. When he had 44 home runs and 31 stolen bases, he could do it all. And he missed the Triple Crown that year by just point zero zero seven. He's the first member of the 500 home run and 3,000 hit club. Most 30 home run seasons for the National League. Um, and again, he ended the 1973 season just one short of Ruth's record. He received thousands and thousands of hate mail each week in the offseason. So 1974, he was pursuing Babe Ruth's record. The Braves started on the road. The Braves wanted him to get the record at home, so the Braves planned on benching him on the road. The commissioner said he couldn't do that. Um, they ended up did breaking it at home. Um, 
beat Roos' record. Um, he ended up finishing it with the, his career with the Milwaukee Brewers after being traded there. So, um, so a few more stats. Again, adjusted OPS means um, it's just one way to me- measure how good of a hitter someone was. Um, Hank Aaron played 23 years. 19 of those years, he had an adjusted OPS above 140, which means 40% better than average. 15 of those was above 150, and 10 of those was above 160. Just consistent greatness that Hank Aaron had. And then war, um, if you have a war above eight, that's like MVP level. He had eight seasons at eight war or above, plus two others at 7.9. So pretty much he had 10 seasons of MVP level seasons. Um... If you have a war of above five, that means you're an all-star. He had 15 straight above six. Only four of his seasons are below 3.9. 3.9 is a solid, and he had no negative seasons. He was just consistently great. And after reading these numbers, I just can't believe that people don't talk about him as a great, one of the greatest of all time. People talk about Babe Ruth or Ted Williams or... Willie Mays, or whoever, but Hank Aaron deserves it. And I mentioned earlier in this podcast, or not this episode, but another episode, and we're talking about greatest teams of all time. And can you call someone a greatest player of all time? Or excuse me, in the what I said was, can you call a team the greatest team of all time if they didn't play in an integrated era? And I would ask the same question here. Can you consider anybody that didn't play in an integrated era, the greatest player of all time. That would eliminate Ruth and DiMaggio and Gehrig. But Hank Aaron played in an integrated era, and he played against some great players. He played in the dominant era of pitching in the 1960s and against Koufax, Bob Gibson, etc. He won a World Series. He was a star. He put up great numbers. Um, consistent numbers um, year in and year out. And I believe, and I can't confirm this, I believe he never went on the disabled list. But I think you look up his, or put all the stats together, and you have a strong case that he is the greatest player of all time. Maybe he's not. But definitely without a doubt, um, he's very underrated. And he's definitely, that should be in that conversation. But Hank Aaron... Phenomenal player, and he just passed away recently. Um, but great, great, great player. So that's it for uh, Doc Tell Me More, episode nine, where we hit 1970 through uh, 1993. Um, and that, that this was actually where the original Ken Burns' baseball ended after the after 1993. Um, he put out a tenth inning. In the late 2000s, which is what we're going to talk about next. He ends up putting up a... He put out a top of the 10th, which covered like 94 through like 2000-ish. And then he put up a bottom of the 10th inning, which encompasses like 2000 to 2009. So we have have two more episodes of Doc Tell Me More with Ken Burns' baseball, which would be inning 10. But uh, I really appreciate you listening to this episode. This was a long episode, my longest by far, but there's a lot of information to cover. So thanks again for listening, 
and uh, I'll uh, talk to you next time.